You're listening to Your Best Life, powered by Mercy One. Join us as we have a fun conversation with certified experts and physicians about health topics for you and your family. It's Your Best Life, our one purpose. Hello, this is Miriam Lake. This is Sherry Purdy. And you are listening to Your Best Life, powered by Mercy One. So today we're going to continue with our second part of menopause. So what we want to talk about and listen for is what women can expect to go through when this happens. You know, um, does it just come up out of the blue? What about these hot flashes I hear people talk about and night sweats? What type of medications, supplements do you need to take any? Does it help? Does it? What happens with your sleep changes? And I think, you know, Miriam, I do think a lot of women these days want to know what they can do um, for non-hormonal treatment. So I think today's going to be interesting to hear uh, from the experts on exactly what we can do that doesn't involve necessarily a pill. Exactly. I can speak from a little experience that if you exercise, 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 it greatly, greatly, greatly improves all the little highs and lows and swings that come with uh, the change that your body's going through. And and as always, guys, we, we mentioned this is the second part. So if you haven't listened to the first part, you can certainly go back and listen to that conversation um, about hormonal treatment. So it, it catches you up to what we're talking about today. Okay, Miriam, I think with that, we're going to send this over to our friend Diet in Des Moines and Dr. Valerie Stratton. Hello, I'm back again with Dr. Valerie Stratton of the Mercy One Comfort Health Center in Clive. Dr. Stratton is a North American Menopause Society certified physician. Welcome back, Dr. Stratton, and let's jump right back into our discussion about managing menopause symptoms. When I think one of the first questions we should start with is when can women expect to go through menopause? Right now, the average age is somewhere between 51 and 52, but the perimenopause or premenopausal symptoms can start in your 40s and last up to seven years after you've gone through menopause. So there's a wide range of women going through menopause anywhere from their young 40s to later 50s and then having symptoms beyond into their 60s. And with women living to be 80 to 81 years old now, we can expect to spend at least a third of our life in menopause. So it, if you live that long, you will go through menopause. And some women are bothered by it and some women aren't. Mm-hmm. But it can be quite a stretch of time that women are bothered with it. Yeah, definitely. So I think one of the biggest complaints that we hear typically is um, about menopause is the hot flashes and the night sweats. But if a woman is not a candidate for hormone therapy, what else can be done to help? Yes. As you mentioned, we talked last time about treating women with hormone therapy. And if they're the right candidate, not to be too afraid to talk to their doctor about it because it is the most effective treatment. And if done in the right circumstances, can be a very safe therapy. But if you're not a candidate, such as having high risk for breast cancer, having had breast cancer, blood clots, liver disease, things like that, then we have to look at non-hormonal options. So one of the first things I recommend women do is kind of track their symptoms. So hot flashes and night sweats are a term of what we call vasomotor symptoms. So see, some women are bothered more during the day, some are bothered at night. So we want to see if there's any pattern and any triggers because sometimes they're, they're bothersome, but if you avoid the triggers, you wouldn't even have to do any medications. So for example, 
um, caffeine and alcohol can trigger it. And that caffeine doesn't just have to be in hot beverages. It can be in, in any chilled, like a pop or the energy drinks. Those can trigger hot flashes. But certainly, if you add caffeine and a hot beverage together, you may really notice it. Oh, interesting. Your environment. So if you're wearing tight clothing or your room is just kind of stuffy or warm weather and warm environments tr definitely trigger hot flashes. And then even spicy foods, everybody can sense that sense of hotness, but especially if you're prone to it during perimenopause, you're really going to have a good old hot flash with a spicy. Oh, wow. Okay. Smoking cigarettes, if you that exacerbates the symptoms. Uh, and stress. A lot of women will notice when they're under stress, they'll, have, they'll trigger more hot flashes. So like if you're going out somewhere or you're going to a meeting, try to wear layered clothing, wear materials such as cotton, linen, and rayon, avoid the synthetics, uh, silk and wool. Um, try to sit somewhere where there's a vent or maybe a little fan or a window that you can get a little relief from. And if you're starting to feel warm, if you can sip on a cold drink, that would be helpful. If you can tell it's stress that triggers it, they've done a lot of research on deep breathing. Exercises can help uh, calm it down, take the peak away from the hot flash. And then just regular cardiovascular exercise has been shown to reduce your number of hot flashes and night sweats. Now, if it's at night that's bothering you, the funny thing is as you go to sleep, your body temperature starts to dip down. And that's not a big deal unless you're already lacking estrogen. So when you're younger, you get that low degree uh, or that little drop in temperature and it doesn't bother you. But when you're going through menopause, all of a sudden your brain says, it's time to turn on the heat. You start having a hot flash during the night. Your sweat glands quick kick in. So then you're sweating. So you wake up hot, then you wake up uh, wet. And then sometimes you wake up, you're cold because now that uh, sweat is evaporating and you're cold. Uh -huh. So trying to sleep in a cool room to start with, maybe a fan. And then you would think that wearing socks would make you hotter, but actually wearing socks have shown to help keep regulating your body temperature so you don't get that little dip and, and huh. start flash in the sweat. So maybe wearing socks. Same thing wearing good or uh, the type of fabric for your sheets, like cotton sheets and your cotton pajamas, lower the thermostat at night, and they even sell cooling pillows that you could use or a, a cooling mattress pad. So those things can help that are just kind of what we call lifestyle modifications. From there, we can go to medications that are not hormonal. Uh, one of the biggest ones are the antidepressants. So we use them off-label, which is how we use a lot of medications but they affect your serotonin and the norepinephrine. So of course they help with mood, but even if you have no mood issues, antidepressants are very helpful for hot flashes and night sweats. We use them a lot with breast cancer survivors or women who just also are having mood issues. So you're kind of killing two birds with one stone there. If it's just for hot flashes, the lower dose usually helps compared to the higher doses you have to do with antidepressants or to help with mood. Mm -hmm. um, and there's certain ones that help more than others. So I'll list several by their uh, generic name that help, like paroxetine, escitalopram, citalopram, venlafaxine, and desvenlafaxine. 
There's a couple other common ones that are great for mood but don't help with the hot flashes, such as fluoxetine and sertraline. So even if you're on an antidepressant, you may need a different one if you want it to help with hot flashes. The other thing, if you are a breast cancer survivor and you're on tamoxifen, you have to be careful of which antidepressant you're on because those can interfere with its metabolism. So mm -hmm. definitely something you want to talk to your doctor about if you're going to go on an antidepressant and mm -hmm. you're on tamoxifen. Okay. We do have to be careful. There are some sexual side effects with the antidepressants, which can be a problem itself during menopause. So that's part of the conversation besides other uh, side effects of the antidepressants, but in general, they're well tolerated at low doses to help with vasomotor symptoms. And the nice thing is you can see the effects in a little bit shorter period of time, about two to four weeks. So you don't have to be on in a real long time to see if it's helping. Mm -hmm. That's great. Another type of medication is called gabapentin. That one was originally an anti-seizure medication. Then we found it helped people with nerve pain, like diabetic nerve pain or sciatica nerve pain. And then the women that were on it for these reasons, we found they weren't complaining of hot flashes or night sweats so much. So they've studied that. It's the big side effect with gabapentin is it can make you a little tired. But if somebody comes in and their night sweats are what really is bothering them, I can handle it during the day, but at night it's disrupting my sleep and not getting good sleep affects me during the day. So to take that at night is nice because number one, it helps with the night sweats. And then second of all, it helps you sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And, yep. It's, it's once again, killing two birds with one stone. So mm -hmm. that's why when you're talking about menopause, you want to look at all your symptoms to see if one of the therapies would be a little more helpful than the other based on all of your symptoms. Um, then you can take it during the day. It's just you do have to take it a couple times then during the day if you want to help with hot flashes. So most of the time I see it used at night for night sweats and sleep. Then we go to another medicine that um, women just kind of look at me funny about, but it's oxybutynin because it is the medicine for overactive bladder. I even tell them if they go to their pharmacist, they're going to tell them, no, that's not for hot flashes, but it is. When we have to look for non-hormonal options that we can use, like with breast cancer survivors who can't have the hormones, they had noted women who were on this oxybutynin for overactive bladder were complaining of a decreased sweating. So they studied it with menopause women. So it um, is a very nice option for, uh, like I say, women who can't take the hormones. It does have side effects of dry mouth, which is can be a real block. And you have to be careful that they don't do the opposite instead of overactive bladder, that they have some urinary retention. And it's a little harder to use in older women, but real older women, I mean, late elderly women. But as you move through menopause, women also complain of overactive bladder. So here you can be killing two birds with one stone also. So, so I've liked using that drug. Mm -hmm. There is the clonidine patch is a blood pressure medicine. Before we had some of these other medications, they were using clonidine, but if you don't have high blood pressure, it can make you dizzy when you stand up, it has dry mouth, has some medication interference, and it's definitely less effective than the other options we've talked about. So really that gets kind of to the bottom of my list, and if they already are on blood pressure medicines, we have to change those up. So that one's not my favorite, but it's still an option out there. It does have to be the patch versus a pill. 
because it needs to be more of a sustained release. One of the last things that we can use is, um, if it's for night sweats, is a medication called Lunesta, which is escitalopram. That is a medication like the Ambien, but it not only just helps with sleeping through it, it's been the one that's been shown to reduce night sweats. Of course, we like to avoid putting people on long-term sleeping pills, but especially if they're just very miserable and it's only at night, then we could consider that medication. Okay. Those are the main non-hormonal medications that we have available. Okay, perfect. And so besides these medications, are there other over-the-counter supplements women can take? They are. They are, of course, a little less studied, and you have to be careful because when you think something's going to help you, it will make your body feel better. So when we study medications, we study them against placebos. And the problem with a lot of the supplements is they're not studied against placebos. So once again, there's some of these things we're going to talk about can help, but they can also have side effects. Just because they're over the counter doesn't mean they're not having any side effects. And I would definitely review it with your doctor before taking them. But uh, one common one that people talk about is flat cohosh. It's a member of the buttercup family, actually. And its effectiveness over time has been kind of debatable, but it may help some people. Long-term use has been associated with some liver enzyme elevation. So you, if you're going to be on a, a long time, uh, like over six months, you've got to make sure your doctor's checking your liver tests. And then watch mostly for nausea and GI upset with it. The second one that is talked about a lot is soy. If you're going to take soy, this, we want you to take the soy foods, um, not so much the supplements because they may not have the right soy protein in it. So these, the soy foods have plant estrogens in them and they act very weakly like an estrogen. So, and the big thing to know about the soy is that you, in order to convert it into a weak estrogen, you have to have a certain conversion in the body and some women just don't convert it. So it just oh, doesn't okay. help at all. Asian women, it helps more with, and for example, a lot of the research on soy has been done with monkeys, but monkeys convert it more efficiently than women. So it doesn't necessarily uh, apply to women, those kind of studies. But once again, if you just stick with the soy foods, uh-huh. they can be good for you anyway, and uh, just avoid the soy supplements. Gotcha. And do they have any recommendations as to if you're going to have soy foods, do you need to have like, like a certain serving amount per day or week or something? Or, you know, that's a very good question, but I really don't, I suppose I would say if you feel it tends to help enough to help and, but otherwise, no, I don't see that recommendation in the literature, but good question. There is a evening primrose. There's even littler scientific data about this. You can tolerate it pretty well, but you have to be careful if you're taking any antipsychotics. It can you can develop seizures with that. There is some evidence of an increased risk of blood clots or decrease in your immune system. So that would be a little lower on my list compared to like black cohosh or the soy foods. Okay. And then vitamin E at 800 international units has uh, has had some placebo-controlled studies and. Overall, they considered it a slight decrease of heart hot flashes, excuse me. But then again, if you're only mildly having hot flashes, vitamin E at 800 
units may be enough to help. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other ones is SAGE. Once again, quite limited evidence that it helps. Overall, it's generally safe, but there are some oil-based preparations out there and you want to avoid those because those can affect the nervous system and cause seizures and dizziness. So that's kind of the main ones for the over-the-counter supplements. Um, and during our last podcast, you also mentioned another very common and bothersome symptom of menopause being vaginal dryness. What should women watch for and when should they seek medical attention? Yes, it's a very common problem that can even start before menopause and ultimately uh, cause symptoms. Whether you're sexually active or not, it can cause discomfort in the vagina. A lot of women who get frequent bladder infections and keep seeking care for that, it's all because the urethra is down right there and the tissue is very dry it can be itchy, and you can actually see changes to the external genitalia and things like that. So you can have this looked at during your physical. So what we start with is something simple, the regular use of a moisturizer. So there are lubricants out there, but moisturizers are, you use it two to three times a week. And uh, once again, there are certain brands that have a better pH and osmolality that you can talk to your doctor about. But if a moisturizer and lubricant isn't enough, then we have to look at vaginal estrogen. And when I say vaginal estrogen, that means it's being absorbed in the vagina and very, very minute amounts are absorbed into your system. And there's different brands with different uh, types of absorption. For example, there's a vaginal cream. Those are a little messy to apply, but have been around a long time but they have actually the highest degree of absorption into the body. And like I say, a little messy. So the next thing is vaginal tablets. They actually look like little pills that you could take by your mouth, but you either just insert it in the lower third of the vagina with your finger, or there's a little applicator. All these vaginal estrogens I'm talking about are estradiol uh, primarily, and that's a bioidentical hormone. Okay. Uh, so it more mimics your own natural estrogen. There are other suppositories. Some of them contain a little DHE that, that convert to testosterone. Uh, some of the vaginal lining improves with uh, testosterone if you need that added. Then there's others that are more like ovules that have more of an oil waxy covering. So as they melt, they kind of provide that moisturizing plus the estradiol. And that particular one comes in a quite low dose compared to any others and it's still very effective, so really, truly minimal absorption. And last of all, there's a vaginal ring that you can actually put in, and you just leave it there and just change it every three months. So I guess I just wanted to bring up that it's very common, can be very bothersome, and uh, don't be afraid to bring it up to your doctor. And even then, you have you know multiple choices of how to administer that vaginal estrogen. There is one pill uh, that's called uh, Osfina. It's an oral medication, but it acts like estrogen on your vaginal lining. But even though it acts like estrogen on your vaginal lining, it can actually give you a couple hot flashes. Hmm. Uh, it tends to be a little more expensive because it's name brand. And um, I, some women just prefer, if, if they're going to treat down below in the vagina, they just want something local and not take it systemically. 
but there is one oral medication that's approved for that. Okay. Good to know. Um, I just wanted to mention the other term for vaginal dryness is called atrophic vaginitis or the genital uh, syndrome of menopause. Okay. Genital okay. urinary syndrome of menopause, excuse me. Okay. So you can hear those names tossed around. And there are some laser procedures you can have done too, but that's beyond the scope of this particular podcast. Gotcha. Okay. What are some other common menopausal complaints that you see in your practice? One big thing is sleep disturbance and that can be due either to the night sweats or they just don't sleep the same as they used to when they were 20. Uh, once again important to discuss with your doctor because they need to tease out if you're having symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea or if it's actually a condition called restless leg syndrome but other times it's just sleep disturbance because of going through menopause and getting older. So the first thing you'd want to do is just do good sleep hygiene. I won't go into all of that for this, but you know, things like, you know, using the bedroom only for sleep, you know, not avoiding the computer and TV that last half hour to hour before going to bed, you know, avoiding caffeine. So you, you would want to do those. Otherwise you could try melatonin. The thing I want to stress about melatonin, it only takes a very low dose and a lot of the over the counter, sell too high of milligrams and when you take the higher milligrams over a period of time it can actually do the opposite and make you more drowsy during the day and disrupt your sleep more so if you're going to use melatonin you're going to want to buy just the one milligram strength and break that in half but they sell three five ten milligrams which wow. may work better in the short term but in the long term it's going to have the opposite effect and then there's products such as tylenol pm or once again, we talked about hypnotics like Lunesta or Zolpidem, uh, if needed, and they have their pros and cons also you'd want to talk to your doctor about, but I'd really stress the good sleep hygiene rules to help with that first and foremost. Okay. I think another big thing I hear about are bladder changes. Women either have urinary incontinence, and it's one of two types. Usually either the stress incontinence is, oh, I cough and sneeze, and you have to cross my legs or I can leak a little urine or the urgency kind where you've got to go and you've got to go right now, the over, which is overactive bladder. Both of those can be helped a lot with pelvic floor physical therapy. And so you want to find a physical therapist who spends most of their time just doing pelvic floor. Um, they do a lot of extra training and a very specialized field and can be very, very helpful for women. But if that doesn't work, then there's also pessary rings that can support the bladder. Um, for the urge incontinence, they can inject some Botox around the, the bladder to help uh, calm it down. And then, of course, there's surgeries, too. So a lot of women, when they get to that point, seek out a urogynecologist. Uh, that is both a gynecologist and a uro urologist mixed together and uh, specialized in this. Sure. Perfect. I also have a lot of complaints of mood changes. Um, it can be anywhere from mild, I'm just more irritable, uh, to actually having depression and anxiety that either they've had minor before and now it's really flaring or it's new for them. 
And um, so we talked earlier about the antidepressants that can help with the vasomotor symptoms, so they can also help with mood changes. We uh, also highly encourage a therapist and a counselor, which we do have a full-time therapist here at the Women's Center also. And for some women, especially if it's accompanied by the hot flashes and night sweats, hormone therapy itself can help with the mood. Um, but if we're talking non-hormonal, then we'd want to talk, focus more on a therapist and, and antidepressants. Um, there's more and more availability of DNA pharmacogenomics where you can get tested to see how you metabolize medications. And that would help select the best antidepressant for you so you don't have to trial so many of them or worry quite so much about if you're taking the right one. Okay. Um, one thing for women that is also common is just having a, a little decreased libido. And there are some things, if that's bothersome for women, that uh, can be done. Um, and just to know that it, it's just common for women and that there are options out there to be treated. So just don't be afraid to mention that either. Mm -hmm. Okay. Women complaining of hair thinning. And so in general, a healthy diet would help with that, less red meat, just overall lower calories, and either as supplements, taking some zinc, iron, vitamin D, also a multivitamin biotin. But beyond that, then you might want to look at the over-the-counter topical minoxidil. Just remember with using that, that so that's like Rogaine for women. Okay. You can get the generic topical minoxidil as a solution or a foam. But in the very beginning, you might notice a slight increase in the hair loss, but then it starts working after that, and it can take six months to a year to see results. So you have to be pretty patient with it. So that's something over the counter you can do on your own. Otherwise, there are some medications that are anti-androgens that block your androgens, like um, so you avoid that hair thinning like men get, but that is a prescription and you have to have or labs monitored for that. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of those medications available, but they are there. Um, so like I say, in the beginning, I would just try to take good care of your hair you know, less hair coloring, less blow drying, things like that also help with hair loss. Okay. Especially if you have longer hair and you're pulling it back a lot, that, that tension on the hair can increase hair loss too. Okay. And are there any major health concerns women need to worry about during menopause? Yes, a couple of the big ones that you don't have to see a menopause specialist for but should talk to your primary care doctor about is your bone health. Um, women, when you lose your estrogen, bones tend to thin, so you should be taking your vitamin D and your calcium and getting exercise. But at your physical each year, you should be screened for risk factors to see if you need a bone density test because there's certain medications, certain medical conditions, you know, family history, um, smoking, things like that, that can increase your risk and you may need a bone density sooner than another woman. So um, to start protecting your bones when you're young and just continue that through menopause, like I say, especially with not smoking, vitamin D, calcium, and exercise. The last major thing I kind of consider together is heart disease and stroke. You know, more women die from heart disease and stroke than cancer. So just in general, healthy lifestyle and 
once a year at your physical, you know, discuss your weight, your diet, make sure you're managing your blood pressure, your diabetes. And then there, once you do your cholesterol, we can do a risk calculation to do, analyze your risk of a heart attack or stroke over the next 10 years. And with that percent, then we determine whether you need medication for it or not. So uh, those are probably two of the bigger ones, keeping your bone health and preventing heart disease and stroke. Okay, that is great. Well, Dr. Stratton, thank you so very much for sharing your time and your expertise. Um, I hope at the very least that our listeners um, who might be experiencing any issues at least realize that help is available. Um, you're certainly a great resource here in Des Moines, but also outside of um, of Des Moines or even Iowa, which you, I think you would just suggest they would contact their primary care physician as a good starting point. Absolutely. Okay, that's wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Take care. Stay mm -hmm. safe. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. So just to remind you, podcasters, with this episode, they mentioned pelvic floor training and physical therapy. And on episode number five of our podcast, we actually had a physical therapist on talking specifically about incontinence therapy, pelvic floor functioning. And I think it's a great time to remind you to go back and listen to number five because it's great information that can help you after listening to this as well. So thanks for listening. And as always, live your best life.